Well, we could turn in God's words to 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel chapter 24, continuing our readings in the life of David, and coming really to one of the most moving scenes in David's life when he finds Saul entirely at his mercy and is confronted with what to do. So 1 Samuel 24, let us hear God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, 
Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Well, if you could have your Bibles open again at 1 Samuel 24, and we'll really consider the whole chapter this evening. Now, occasionally we are faced with significant choices which set the course for our lives. Most days we only have routine choices. Will I hit snooze on the alarm clock one more time? Will I have that second biscuit with my cup of tea. But some days we are faced with life-changing choices. Will I go out with this man or woman? Will I change job? Or most importantly, when confronted with the gospel, will I repent and believe in Jesus Christ? Choices which drastically affect every day of our life from that point. And David here is faced with one of these life-altering choices. After a brief respite, Saul is back hunting him, seeking to kill him. But then, all of a sudden, Saul is alone in a cave. And David and his men have Saul at their mercy. And at that moment, a great choice confronts David. Will I kill Saul and claim the crown? Or will I let Saul go unharmed and continue in a life of suffering? And we'll see this evening the choice that David makes in that scenario. And then the dialogue that follows between David and Saul. And the passage nicely breaks into these three sections. David's choice, verses 1 to 7. David's call verses 8 to 15, and Saul's confession, verses 16 to 22. David's choice, David's call, Saul's confession. First, David's choice, verses 1 to 7, and most of our time will be spent here. The scene is set in verses 1 to 3. Saul returns victorious from battle against the Philistines, and immediately he turns again to his great obsession, which is to destroy David. And Saul's network has been at work, and Saul's told David is in Engedi. So Saul gathers 3,000 men, and off they go. Saul reaches the general area that David is in, and Saul feels the call of nature. And so he goes alone 
into a cave. And it just so happens that this is the cave David and his men are hiding in. Saul is at the mercy of David. The scene is set. But even in the setting of the scene, there's a great lesson for us. And it's just how vulnerable the greatest of men are. Here is Saul with his 3,000 men, back from military victory, probably feeling impregnable. But though he is a victorious king, he is just a man. And God overrules even his bodily needs to humble him before his enemy, David. And that's saying to us, however grand we think we are, we are creatures of the dust, vulnerable at any moment. And the scene is also meant to link our minds back to Judges 3. That's the only other mention of a king relieving himself. And that is the Moabite king Eglon. And you might remember how Ehud, Israel's deliverer, navigated himself into a situation where he was alone with the king. And he then killed King Eglon with a dagger. And then the servants wonder where the king is. They say he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And the writer here is setting up that link in our mind. A king alone. Israel's deliverer with a knife. Talk of the king relieving himself. What does that mean? It means death for the king. And that's exactly what David's men think. They say, David, all your desires have come true. The man who has called caused all your trouble. He is here alone, completely in your power. So verse 4, David's men say, Here is the day of which the Lord said, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And how sure David's men are in interpreting providence. They see the moment and they know exactly what must be done. There's no need to pause to seek God's will because they already know God's will. And apparently for David's men, this is all the fulfillment of God's promise. God said he would give the enemy into David's hands. And David could do whatever he wanted. But the Bible is silent on any promise like this ever being given to David. And so what these men seem to be doing is misreading their desires into this particular providence. And claiming then, this is God's will. David, you must Kill Saul. And that's a great caution for all of us that interpreting providence is never easy. Often we can be like David's men here or like Jonah running away and finding a ship. We can misread providence as giving us license just to do what we want. I want to get married and This nice, kind, non-Christian wants to pursue a relationship with me. Surely that is a good 
providence. I want a promotion, and it is on offer, if only I just compromise on this one small matter of ethics. Surely that's God saying to me, he's giving a chance to maximize the use of my gifts. But providences can often be tests as well as provisions. And we need prayer and wisdom to be able to discern that difference. And here, for David, in providence, he is facing a severe test. Saul, who has done him so much harm, is at his mercy. His men are urging him, now is the time to claim the throne, David. This is God's will. Kill the king. But Saul is no Moabite king like we had in Judges 3. He is the man that God has set on the throne of Israel. And it is God, not David, who has the right to remove him. So how will David respond to this test? Well, verse 4b, David arises. He has a knife in his hand. He advances towards Saul. He reaches out. But then he just cuts a corner off his robe. And we breathe a sigh of relief. David has passed the test. He has left vengeance in God's hands. Deuteronomy 32. But what David has done is very symbolic. It is a picture of cutting the kingdom away from Saul. David, in cutting Saul's robe, is staking his claim to be king. Recall 1 Samuel 15, 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So David has refused to attack Saul physically, but he's attacked him symbolically, tearing his robe, denying Saul's right to the kingdom. And on reflection, David even finds what he has done too much. He quickly repents, verse 5. David's heart struck him because he had cut the corner of Saul's robe. Even symbolically, David knows that he should not be rebelling. God has made Saul king. Only God can take him away. David cannot lead or even hint at an insurrection without guilt. And so verse 6, he says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. I cannot touch the one that God has set apart. And in that, the writer is setting a great contrast between David and Saul. Because what has Saul done just a few chapters before? Saul has slaughtered the entire city of the priests. Saul has shown no mercy to the Lord's anointed priests. But here David will not touch the Lord's anointed king. David's men, however, are not particularly happy with what is transpiring. They have suffered under Saul. They have given up everything to follow David. They want him to be king. And now was the time. 
And it would have been so easy for David just to step back and say, I, I can't do the deed. But you men, do what you want. But no, verse 7, David persuaded his men and did not permit them to attack Saul. And the original is much stronger. It means David tore into his men. David had to exert significant effort and energy to protect Saul and to prevent his men harming him. And you see the the wonderful irony here that David has now become Saul's defender. And because of that, the scene ends, verse 7, Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Could have been so different. He could have been a dead man, but he ups and leaves, none the wiser of the danger that he has just been through. But before we move on, let's just rehearse once again the choice that David had. On the one hand, he could have killed Saul and the throne would have been his. No more suffering. Just one stroke of a knife and all God's promises would have come true. He could have just reached out his own hand in his own strength. And he would have been king. And glory would have been his. Or on the other hand, he had the choice to spare Saul. His suffering would then continue. He would remain a hunted outcast. He would have to wait for God's time and God's way to become king. In other words, what David had to choose here was between the way of the cross inheriting the kingdom through suffering or the way of glory, a shortcut to the kingdom through his own power. And David here says, as the representative of God's people, I will choose the way of the cross, foreshadowing the ultimate seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, not through strength, but through weakness and death. And every one of us has to face that same choice that David did in this passage, not as dramatically, but we all have the choice. Are we to be what Martin Luther called a theologian of glory, or are we to be a theologian of the cross? That is, as a theologian of glory, you live life in your own strength, achieving glory now through your own merit and dreaming of heaven to come by our own works and our own power. Or will we be theologians of the cross, renouncing our own so-called strength, realizing that our lives must be conformed to the suffering of our Savior with heaven promised not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Well, may we all choose, as David did, to be theologians of the cross, showing ourselves then to be fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him.
And of course, thinking of Christ, he was the one who was tempted more than any other to be a theologian of glory. You will remember the temptations that Jesus faced at the beginning of his public ministry when he was tried by the devil in the wilderness. And what was the last temptation that Jesus faced? Matthew 4, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship. And what was that temptation? Jesus, take the crown now. Bypass the betrayal, the trial, the cross. Just worship and the world will be yours. Take the glory and leave the suffering. Jesus, become a theologian of glory with Satan's temptation. But Jesus said, be gone Satan. And in that, behold, great David's greater son, making the same but the greater choice than David, refusing the shortcut to the crown, choosing to suffer the cursed death of the cross. And because the Lord Jesus Christ is the theologian of the cross, in all the foolish times that we try and be theologians of glory, doing things in our own strength, we can know forgiveness and mercy. So that is David's choice. He spared Saul. Then, verses 8 to 15, David's call. Following the incident in the cave, we have one of the longest, or in fact the longest, recorded speech between David and Saul in the Bible. And in giving us these long speeches, the writer is saying, something significant has just happened. And I want you to understand what that significance is. David speaks first. And what he really does is he says, in the light of what I have just done, Saul, you must repent. When Saul leaves the cave, David follows him. He calls out, verse 8, my Lord, the King. And when Saul turns in shock to see who is speaking, he sees David bowing down with his face to the earth, paying homage to Saul. And if you want a picture of grace in action, that is it. David bowing down, paying homage to the man who has been seeking his life. David here you know, breathes out the spirit of the kingdom. Matthew 5, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left also. You have heard it was said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Behold, in David here, bowing down in homage before Saul, the man after God's own heart, the man who before the Sermon on the Mount was preached, embodied what it meant. David then presents his case to Saul. 
He doesn't accuse Saul of persecuting him. David does everything he can to have this peaceable attitude to Saul. He's honored him. He's bowed down before him. And instead of saying, Saul, why are you choosing to persecute me? He says, Saul, why are you listening to those around you who are telling you that I desire to harm you? It's as if David is saying, I don't place the blame on you, Saul. Be free to turn away from the path that you are on. Listen to the evidence I am going to give you. You are free to make up your own mind. And what a compelling case David presents to Saul to try and change his mind. Verse 10, he says, Saul, trust your experience and not what these others are saying to you. You have seen, Saul, how the covenant Lord led you where I could easily have killed you. And that reference of David in verse 10, the Lord gave you into my hand, is calling Saul to repent, to to realize the madness of what he is doing. Saul is running over all the country trying to find David, and he's unable to do it. Why? Because the Lord is protecting David. And the opposite of that is true. The Lord is delivering Saul up to potential death. David is saying to Saul, see where the covenant Lord is in all this. Turn away, repent. And David says, Saul, see how I am treating you. Though I could have killed you, though others urged me to do it, I did not. I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord. He is the Lord's anointed. And then dramatically, David produces the corner of the robe. Here is irrefutable evidence that I am not out to kill you, Saul. Verse 11, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. So David has proved his innocence. And then he commits the whole matter to the Lord. He calls verse 12 for God to judge, for God to avenge, protesting that David, he will not. And again, David here is calling Saul to repentance by bringing before him the reality of God's judgment. We can often be hesitant about appealing to God's justice. But at the end of the day, sin must be dealt with. Justice is not a bad word. And in fact, one of the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul is a call for justice to Timothy 4. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It is a solemn truth that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that truth is brought out to draw people from sin and to repentance. And that's what David does here. And as David appeals to God, he gives Saul two reasons why he should fear God's judgment and turn from his current path. The first is David's innocence. David says, verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. 
David is saying, I'm not committing wicked acts against you, Saul. And that means that I am not wicked. In this matter, I am just. And therefore, by implication, Saul is unjust and should fear David's appeal to the judgment of God. And the second thing David highlights is his own insignificance. He says, verse 14, Against whom has the king of Israel come out? After a dead dog, after a flea. Saul, know that I am nothing. My worth is comparable to a dead dog or a single flea. I am worthless, but you are king. And Saul know that God has a high regard for the outcast, the poor. And the king who persecutes the poor does not please God. So you, Saul, should fear God's judgment. And I can't help thinking of Jesus when David calls himself a dead dog and a flea. That was what David was reduced to in seeking the kingdom. And it was what Jesus was reduced to as well. Because what does the Messianic Psalm 22 say? I am a worm and not a man. Well, David closes out his speech in verse 15 with another appeal to God. And David's whole speech really amounts to a call to Saul. Repent, turn back. God will judge if you do not. If you continue on this path, Saul, God as the righteous judge will deal with you because I, David, will not. And no less the call goes to all of us. If we are rejecting the claims of great David's greater son, repent before the Lord judges. So David's choice, David's call, and finally, very briefly, Saul's confession, verses 16 to 22. How is Saul going to respond to David's passionate call to repentance? Well, he responds with deep contrition. Verse 16, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. No more refusing To call him David, referring to him dismissively as the son of Jesse. He is now my son, David. And confronted with the mercy and the goodness of David. Tears of sorrow flow from Saul. Here is a man brought face to face with his sin. And the horror of what he has done and what he has become reduces him to weeping. And as well as producing tears, David's actions and his words produce a great change in Saul's speech. He pours out his heart in verses 17 to 21. He acknowledges that David is righteous. He confesses that David's actions have shown him to be a good man, not Saul's enemy. He confirms that God is for David and will give David the kingdom. And he humbly asks David, Do not destroy my family from off the earth when I am dead and you, David, are king. If you were to look for a model of repentance, here it is. Well, yes and no. 
These are model words. A turning from sin and confessing the truth. But repentance is not simply words. Important as words are, repentance is a lifelong act. And our repentance is shown not by our words, but by our deeds. Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And when we just see words, there is always the danger of it being a stony ground hearer, of it being temporary repentance. Luke 8, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. And that is the great and the ultimate tragedy of Saul, that he knows the truth, that at times he confesses the truth, but he always lets it go. Other things always bury it in his life. The words here are so, so sincere, but they lack root. Now, David does all he can to encourage this repentance to be one of lasting fruit. Verse 22, he does, as Saul has asked, he swears to protect Saul's descendants. Every encouragement to Saul's repentance is given. There's one exception. David waits for more fruit before he returns to Saul's palace. The chapter closes, Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And how wise that hesitancy of David was. As believers, we have to be charitable. We have to be encouraging. We have to hope all things. But we are not to be naive. So where does this all leave us? Well, it leaves us with Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who chose the path of the cross, the one who refused the easy path to glory, the one who made himself of no reputation, the one who despised the shame and endured the cross. It leaves us with Jesus as the theologian of the cross calling to us all to repent for the times we have chosen the easy path of sin. And it leaves us with Jesus himself saying, learn from Saul. Don't be convicted of the truth. Don't be sorry over sin just to bury that conviction. Instead, come to me as the suffering saviour to give you true repentance. Jesus, after his life of suffering, is now exalted. Why is Jesus Christ exalted? To give true repentance. Act 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So this evening, may we all go afresh to Jesus Christ, the theologian of the cross, now exalted, to give us that true repentance. We all need. Amen.